Imagine with me a timeline of history that is rolled out at a particular point in time at a plot on this timeline a people stand in that moment of history. A lot of fears are being talked about at that moment. Fears from without and an even growing sense of fears within. There are stories of wars on the other side of the world. Nations being conquered, people groups being subjugated. Fears abound. These people don't know what their future looks like. There are cries for deliverance, but the voices of would-be deliverers who show up in these moments speak of a stronger rhetoric that is needed or mightier arms that could be called into play. One would-be deliverer after another comes and promises some sort of deliverance on these terms. But the people know that before at different points in history, their God has acted mightily and delivered people who have cried out to him. So their voices begin to rise and they cry out to their God for deliverance. I have a plan, he says. I have a plan to deliver you from all of these wars and from all of the hatred, from everything that has ever been wrong with this world, from the deepest parts of your heart that hurt and long and feel pain and suffering, and for the farthest places of the world that just absolutely terrify you. I've got a plan for it all. A baby. My plan is a baby. And as he grows up, the movement of his life will not be a march toward the throne in Rome, but upon a Roman cross. And it will not be what you expect. Twice in his life, swords will be lifted in his presence, one by one of his own followers to strike down the enemy, but he will actually lift his hand and heal that very man. And a second time as it's plunged into his side to end his own life. The weapons that are seen in Jesus' lifetime. And the people call for this deliverance. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, and as this deliverer arrives on the scene, the disciples are having such a hard time accepting a Savior on God's terms. They keep coercing Jesus. They want him, along with all of the crowds, to be the deliverer that is fashioned in the image of their own imagination. These are all the things that would bring security to all that I'm afraid of in the world. God, will you come and meet me on my terms? Will you be the deliverer that I've longed for? But even those who are closest to him after three years still can barely comprehend his exact identity and who he is. Last week, we we stopped and paused at the beginning of the on the way section in the Gospel of Mark at chapter 8, verse 22. Begins these several chapters with this chorus of on the way, on the way, who will join Jesus on the way? The story begins with a weird blind man healing where Jesus touches him, but he sees people walking around like trees. So Jesus touches him again, which becomes an example of of Peter's declaration of the Messiah, that he can kind of see it, but he still doesn't really believe that a Messiah has to suffer, and he needs one more touch from Jesus in order to fully get it. 
And in the unfolding chapters in this on the way, Jesus' language becomes increasingly overt about this is what it will mean. I will be handed over. I will suffer. If you want to come on this journey, you must deny yourself and your ambitions. You must take up a form of suffering if you want to join me and then follow me wherever I take you and you will fall in line behind me and not me in front of you for you will not receive a savior crafted in your own image. But if you will allow me, I will turn you instead into mine. And those are the terms. He doesn't lay them out any other way. In the passage we're going to look at today, we come across the last potential candidate in the on the way section, words that again close this passage. And we've been longing and longing as a reader to find out who will get it, who will understand Jesus on his own terms, who will see him for what he really is. The demons did it on chapter one. They got it from the first page of this gospel. A few people in the margins start to get a little bit closer. Who will be able to name Jesus and see him for the deliverer that God actually brings? Mark chapter 10, verse 46. All this has been building and building and building. We're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Now we're just several miles out. Then, then they came to Jericho. And of course, the astute biblical reader who knows their Old Testament well knows the famous story of Jericho. Mark doesn't include this little detail by accident. They're at Jericho. This is the historical staging point. If you want to conquer Israel, you got to go through Jericho. But there was another battle that happened in Jericho where God proved himself as Israel's deliverer a long time to lead them into a new and promised land. And that first battle was not won either in a form of war. It was won in a form of worship. As trumpets sounded, shouts were raised, and God was glorified. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowds have been waiting for a son of David. That's the whole point. That's what the disciples wanted, wasn't it? In just a few verses, Jesus comes in riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they start quoting the Old Testament Psalms from coronations. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. This man has no eyesight, but perfect insight. And he can see Jesus finally for who he really is. Isn't that ironic in this passage? The one person so completely blind can actually see Jesus for who he really is. But he understands what the true son of David has come to bring to Israel. Everybody else wants a Jesus who comes in and sits on a throne and trades in the currencies of power that work in the world. Monetarily, militarily, in power and in authority in the way the world recognizes it. But notice his quote. It isn't Jesus, son of David, come and deliver me from my enemies. Jesus, son of David, come and fall alongside the vision and ambitions I have for the solutions to the world's problems. Jesus, son of David, give me security at the expense of somebody else. This man sees Jesus for who he really is because look at what he asks for. Jesus, son of David, 
have mercy on me. A true disciple who will come and follow this king and accept this deliverer on his terms will cry out to him, not for a Messiah to fall in line behind him, but for one that will have mercy on us. He is so blind, but he can see so clearly what Jesus really came to bring. Have mercy on me. That's what I need from you. That's what I really need from you. And I am no different than Bartimaeus. I need his mercy. That's what it came for. That's what this is all about. Not a Jesus in my image, but me as the recipient of his mercy. And they all tell him to be quiet. You're a nobody. Stop interrupting this guy. He's important. He's going important places. Crowds follow him. They're going to sing to him. And Jesus is on the most important journey the world has ever seen. He is marching towards the cross and the apex of all of history. And that timeline is about to happen. But Jesus still stops. Because somebody's hurting. What an incredible lesson for all who would see our God clearly. That we would understand what his priorities really are in this world. Jesus stops. Because somebody's hurting. And he can see it. And that's what dictates his agenda. It's what moves his heart. It's what all of his ambitions are like. It's what he invites us to do if we are going to follow him. That's the call. That's the Messiah that we get. As Jesus stops. And listen to the way that they almost condescendingly talk to this man. So they call to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Here's your moment with the celebrity. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. His cloak here is a technical Old Testament term. According to Jewish law, this is the last inalienable right that a human being has. It's what you laid out to signify that you had no dignity left, that you were a beggar. People walking by would have thrown their money in it, and he tosses it aside. Imagine the coins falling into the dust. The only things that he had collected that were going to feed him and sustain him, they're flying through the air in this moment. The last thing that he can claim any right to, he is willing to abandon. And he runs headlong toward Jesus. He jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Most people who are blind move very cautiously for fear that they would trip or fall. And I'm guessing particularly in a world where streets are not paved and floors are not even. But look at the risk in this man. Nothing will stop him from seeking the mercy of the God that he longs for so bad. And then Jesus' line, what do you want me to do for you? Like a little kid sitting on Santa's lap in the mall. What do you want for Christmas? The answer can be as big as your imagination can cast it. This man actually sees Jesus for who he is. He gets his identity better than anybody we've ever met. He knows the authority with whom this person is asking him this question. What do you want me to do for you? The world at your fingertips. If you recognize God standing before you this Christmas and he says to you, what do you want me to do for you? Blank check. Anything. Write it on your Christmas wish list. What do our hearts long for? 
I got convicted by this line so many different times, thinking, would I really actually answer what I hope I would answer? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. Which is so telling because only a few verses before, Jesus actually asked the same thing of James and John. On chapter 10, verse 35, just a few verses before that, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Word for word, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left when you come in your glory. Because something really cool is going to come out of all of this yet. And all of us who've been closest to you, you know the ones you kind of all pulled aside. Like it's pretty obvious to everybody watching. We're part of the inner core. So that means that we get the best seats, right? We get the VIP treatment. Because that's how it's going to work in this kingdom. That's how it works in every kingdom, Jesus. Tell me you know the rules. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho, and our story starts. That's the precursor. What do you want me to do for you? How does your heart answer that question? For how it does, I think, is rather telling of our discipleship itself. Remember, how we see the Messiah determines so much of our discipleship. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. And the way I love his answer is because I think everybody else would have wanted to see in order to see the things of the world. But he's already demonstrated to us that he understands Jesus and everything that is valuable to him. He's thrown aside the things of the world. They hold no lure for him. What he wants to see is the kingdom of God come. He wants eyes of faith. He wants to receive a deliverer as he names himself, not as we want him to be. Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And now we're going all the way back to the first healing we encountered in Mark's gospel. The word that was used there wasn't even just the word that's translated healed in the New Testament. It's also translated saved. Your faith has saved you. It has healed you. It has sozoed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus and along the way. And this literary chorus that's been taking place for these verses, wondering who's going to follow, who's going to follow, who's going to come, Bartimaeus does. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. In all the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, nobody who was ever healed by Jesus' name we are ever given. And all of a sudden now, the one disciple who's held up for us at the end of the journey who actually gets it. We are given his name. And his name, just like your and mine, is the son of Timaeus, the son of uncleanness. The one crying out for mercy and receives his deliverer. Many biblical scholars argue that Bartimaeus actually went on to become one of the great leaders in the early church. So whenever this story would be told, they didn't have to explain anything else about him because Bartimaeus, everybody would have known. With the heart that he demonstrates and the way that Mark holds him up, as the archetypal disciple, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. So now they come into Jerusalem and the story's about to end. One last little miracle. In chapter 12, the last little miracle in the Gospel of Mark takes place. 
The Pharisees and Herodians tried to catch Jesus in his words, and they came to him. Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others. Because you pay no attention to who they are, but, they, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now why of all things in a gospel that has been trying to teach us all about the identity of Jesus, would that be the last miracle? This is a strange one. Whose image is on it? Whose inscription? Show me some money, Jesus says. Who puts their face on that? Whose faces do we hold up? Leaders who all peddle in the currencies of this world. And Jesus is essentially giving us a choice. You may choose which ones you want to chase after. If people want to put their image and inscription on this, they may. And if they want those things from you, let them have them. For I came to bring you a kingdom that is so much different than this. And so the opposite of the story is implied in Jesus' teaching as well. If Caesar puts his image and inscription on this, this row, can you guys stand up? All of you. Can you turn around for me? Sorry to put you on the spot. Jesus holds up the coin and says, whose image is on this? Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Implied in his answer is, whose image is on this? And whose inscription? My father's. So give back to God what is God's. Give his people back to him. Those are the treasures in the kingdom of heaven. Those who will understand what discipleship is all about is exactly that. Thank you, guys. You can have a seat. Do you see what Jesus is doing? My kingdom is a a totally different paradigm. Stop trying to stuff all these things of the world into it. It won't work. It's not what I came to give you. I don't want the throne in Rome, and I don't want the currencies that all the other powers fight for. I will give you something altogether different. Do not let the authorities of this world and the things that people chase after distract you from who I came to be and what I came to bring. For I came to make all of my people whole. And I choose the weapon of love to come back through the grave on the other side. Merry Christmas. Will you pray with me? Father, so many of us have walked with you for so long. And we have called ourselves by the name Christian. We identify ourselves with the name of your deliverer. Our Christ our anointed one, you with us and we with you. Father, we pray that as we learn how to receive you again and again, and especially this time of year as Christmas comes on us again, that we truly would know how to receive you in your own terms. Teach our hearts not to peddle in the currencies of this world, but in those that matter the most to you that which you put your image and inscription upon. Father, you showed us that fear has no power over love and that love will cast out all fear. May we live within that paradigm and within that reality. May our voices declare it clearly and our hearts own that truth. May we be unwavering 
And in a time like we live in today, may that message come from us louder than ever before. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Amen. You please rise. All of you who were born out of love's creation, whose every breath was designed and every hair has been counted, you, you are the object of his affection. He proved it in how he came and with his image and his inscription so firmly put upon you. You are marked as his. You are co-heirs with Christ. Go out into his name and receive him once again as you go in the power of his spirit. Receive the kingdom. Receive your Savior. Amen.